0: Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel.
1: I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur.
0: I'm Jess Stokes Parish and you're listening to Simulcast.
1: Connecting the healthcare simulation community.
0: So welcome to the July edition of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to talk through three papers that we think might be of interest to our simulation community. How are you, Ben?
1: I'm good, mate. Really looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, IRL as well. So it's a good week for me.
0: I know this first paper is very exciting to you because you love talking about debriefing. And uh, tell us about this paper about Plus Delta.
1: Absolutely. So uh, this paper is dear to my heart for many reasons. And It's also the one that got away a little bit, so I'll tell you more about that. But look, this paper is entitled Embracing Informed Learner Self-Assessment During Debriefing, The Art of Plus Delta by Cheng et al. and was published in Advances in Simulation in 2021. Now, conflict of interest-wise, I teach with these guys, uh, and this features a significant part of uh, the Debriefing Academy faculty on the authorship. So I definitely can't objectively review this. But I do want to highlight it because I think it's a very pragmatic and useful debriefing paper that reframes and brings to light the Sarah Plain and Tall of debriefing strategies, which is the plus delta. And so for those of you new to debriefing, Plus Delta is essentially asking groups what went well and what didn't go well. And it's a pretty simple thing to do. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Uh, and it's often done at the start of a very short debrief as the main structure or in the analysis phase as part of a blended approach. And I don't know about you, Vic, but I know there's been times where I've been a little bit snobby about my debriefing questions. And to be honest, there's sort of times where I felt like being in a debrief and getting a plus delta is a bit like waiting six months to get into a Michelin star restaurant and then being given pizza and a Coke. And for me, I'd be like, excuse me, waiter, I think there's been a misunderstanding here. There's a plus delta in my debrief. Just to be clear, this is not the artisanal grain-fed, locally sourced, gluten-free, earth-shattering, transformative debriefing question I'm expecting from this establishment. Where is the plating? Where is the artistry? So if you could just take this plus delta over to that table of med students over there who can't tell their physical fidelity from their functional task alignment and tell your chef that if I would wanted to question this pedestrian, I would have RSVP'd to the canasta evening at my grandmother's nursing home. I mean, we've all been there, Vic.
0: Whatever's in that tea you're drinking.
1: (laughs) Peppermint, actually.
0: Okay, well, I'd better try some of that. Anyway, I'm going to have to re-listen to that just to really appreciate all of it, by the way. Cool. But I think what you're saying is, sure, Plus Delta hasn't been what the cool kids have been doing. Look, I think
1: so. And I think what this paper does really well is highlight that Plus Delta has a really valuable place in our debriefing tool belt for a number of reasons. And firstly, the authors argue that it's simple. And as such, it's less of a barrier to debriefing than other more complex strategies. And this can have a number of impacts, both on who's comfortable debriefing and how much cognitive load the debriefing actually takes on that person. Secondly, they highlight the importance of learner self-assessment. So while while they simultaneously provide evidence that we're really quite poor at assessing our own performance, but rather than being defeatist about that, they argue that this makes it even more important for us to rehearse self-reflection because it's a core component of team reflexivity. If we can teach our teams to reflect on their performance, they're hopefully more likely to do it in real life about their day-to-day experiences as well. And in addition to that, they argue that a strength of debriefing is that it can provide an external assessment component to compare and contrast with learner self-assessment. Essentially, they argue that plus delta is like a diagnostic punch biopsy of learners' perspectives on their own performance. And once you get that biopsy back, you can then compare it to your own perspectives or to objective data. So you could either be like, sure, you guys thought you did well, but your time off the chest was out of keeping with AHA guidelines. Or you could be like, sure, you guys thought you did terribly, but actually a shock was delivered within 45 seconds of you being in the room. It's not too bad. The paper then utilizes a theoretical four-stage model to foster learning through informed self-assessment by Ross et al., which involves four steps involving students in defining the criteria used to judge performance, teaching students how to apply the criteria, giving students feedback on their performance, informed by objective data and their self-assessments, and then helping students develop action plans. And I would argue here probably I feel like this is a little bit, not necessarily a weakness of the paper, but I felt like this was a little bit more of a tight squeeze to get this theoretical framework into what I thought was already a really beautiful summary of some of the nuance of plus delta. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, Vic.
0: I can see why they felt the need to have some discussion about learner self-assessment, because as one who is currently supervising a PhD that involves looking at students' ability to self-evaluate, it's a very problematic area of literature. And what we know is, as they say in the paper, that in fact, we many of us are not very good at assessing ourselves. And trying to find ways to enhance that capability is a sort of meta-level objective. I think certainly we've been talking about it in the medical school context, but I think in the sim context it's particularly relevant um, because we can have powerful impact. So I can see why they sort of tried to look a little bit broadly about this concept of self-assessment because I think it ends up becoming one of the things that I hadn't really thought about in Plus Delta was it does put quite a spotlight on people's ability to do that. Mm -hmm.
1: So they argue that the plus delta can be one way to structure or at least contribute to the structure of how students consider and incorporate feedback about specific criteria, objective data, or sometimes just the debriefer or the facilitator's opinion of their performance as well. The paper then moves on to the art of the plus delta, and I think even an experienced debriefer will find a lot to reflect on in the breakdown of many of the sort of minor variations on a theme that you can bring to a plus delta, and the different emotional and intellectual impacts it can have on the conversation. So overall take-homes for me were that this is an important debriefing technique to have in your tool belt, but it's often underestimated because of its simplicity, And then it's well worth reincorporating into your tool belt if you've been leaving it out for the right moment in your debrief, particularly with sort of a a mixed blended model. And sometimes a pizza and Coke is exactly what you need.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, I think one of the interesting things that I found as they went through some of the specific aspects of uh, relating to Plus Delta was thinking about this question, maybe you're going to get to this, about the single versus double barrel questioning?
1: Uh, Yeah, I like that as well. Did you want to expand on that? Yeah,
0: and maybe we should even step back a little bit because not everybody might know what we're talking about, but this is where you come into a debrief and you say, so what went well, what do you think could have done differently or um, been improved? And there is a difference between starting with so what went well pause, wait, discuss all of that, and then later on saying, so what do you think could have been different or done better and then going through that? And that's what they describe as a a single-barreled questioning approach, Mm -hmm. whereas the alternative is to start with do people just want to share what they think went well and what they think could have been done differently? And the impact of those two things is quite different. Of course, the latter risks us just focusing on everyone to start with, oh, these were the things that were terrible uh, and you have to extract the positives. Um, but you can see that uh, being intentional about which of those two strategies you have is actually quite important and I hadn't thought much about that at, at this point.
1: Yeah, it really, it really dives into that art, as they say, and all those subtle sort of rapid decision-making things that might be going through your head during a debrief about how upset the group is, whether the performance has overall been strong and they might uh, just uh, need some uh, <clears throat> validation of that or whether they've struggled and you're going to need to try and focus on the positives a bit to get them in a headspace to be able to talk about the constructive things that need to change. It's very nicely done.
0: Mm. And I think the other thing, uh, this is one of the topics about the big picture versus the specific performance issues. I think, um, you know, Pearl's framework helps us a bit with this and saying that you can choose a blended approach and maybe plus delta is part of your debrief. But I think many of us have sort of thought my debrief is plus delta and I have to just make that question about everything that happened in the debrief. Whereas they say clearly you can do that, that's the big picture approach, or the other way is just to talk about some specific task like, say, the particularly a procedural task, intubation or defibrillation. Let's just focus in on that for a minute. What do we think went well and what do we think could have been different? And I think I might think about using that um, in that sort of specific performance issue more than I have done as well.
1: Yeah, I think I might use it more in clinical debriefing as well, in, you know, when we're talking about key events, particularly because we have such specific triggers. they are saying, okay, we well, yeah. specifically about preparation for intubation, what went well.
0: Well, exactly, and certainly that's what I recognised in the sort of plus delta is that we are, that seems to figure quite large in many of the sort of structures and frameworks that people are offering for clinical um, event debriefing. You must have loved that table two, which looks at how might the same issue be discussed in a plus delta, single or double barrel, uh, or in an advocacy inquiry, or in a circular question. I just wrote down with my notes here, Ben Simer will love this table.
1: (laughs) I agree, it's very nice. <laughs> I love that you get me, Vic. That's the thing. Oh, I know, I know. That's
0: it. Uh, can I make a couple of little shout-outs here um, yeah, with regard to the author group? So just as Ben said, the first author in this is Adam Cheng who leads the debriefing academy with the team and i thought i might just mention to people at this point uh, another simulation podcast you might think about listening to is beyond simulation with christine park as a host and she interviewed adam cheng recently and it was lovely this uh, podcast is a bit of a behind the scenes look at the people in sim and so if you're interested in looking at uh, beyond simulation there's a nice interview with adam there and the other thing, um, obviously a little bit more on a somber note, is there's a dedication in here to Chad Epps, who is one of the authors on this paper. Uh, as many of our SIM community might know, he unfortunately died last year. And so uh, much sadness. Uh, and I think a, a lovely dedication to him as a, you know, ex-president of um, the uh, SSIH and the, um, just a great guy came and spoke at Australian SIM Congress a couple of times. And so he will also be sorely missed.
1: I agree. Just the loveliest guy, and our thoughts continue to go out to him and his family.
0: All right. Well, shall we move on to thinking about uh, something a little bit different to debriefing, and um, that is cord prolapse.
1: Uh, absolutely, sounds good.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to take on this one because it probably is uh, the definition of translational simulation approach. And this is a paper in BMJ Still titled Impact of Simulation Training on Decision to Delivery Interval in Chord Prolapse. And this is by uh, Gillian Gallagher and the team at Mater Education, so also friends of ours. I don't know if that's a disclosure or not, but they do good work, so we're highlighting it here. And uh, to give a little bit of a background here and indeed the clinical context that we're looking at, neither Ben nor I are midwives or obstetricians, but they're really looking at the concept of um, cord prolapse. So this is where during delivery, uh, the umbilical cord enters into the birth canal and exits earlier than the baby does and basically gets stuck. Uh, which obstructs the blood supply to the baby. And so it becomes a time critical emergency where the baby has to be delivered or the pressure taken off the cord to get the blood flow back. And I guess the relevance for this is that Because it becomes such a critical time thing, like you've got to get this baby delivered so fast then off to a cesarean section, get the baby out in single or early double digit kind of numbers. So I've seen teams do do this in simulation and it's incredible. And so as they said, it becomes a marker of good teamwork is this time-based performance indicator of decision to delivery interval. So when you decide it's a cord prolapse, we need to go to theatre, to the time when the baby is actually delivered uh, becomes... A really uh, important time and it's a marker of good teamwork now Ben you have been involved with a few of these things I suppose with wearing your pediatric hat you've been on some of the receiving ends you would have seen a few uh
1: arrivals yeah more as a resident than now actually because I work at a place that doesn't have an obstetric service but um absolutely time critical and very important and you get handed a very flat baby if it doesn't go well
0: yeah so, uh, what the team set out to do was look at the association between simulation training and the institutional performance in this decision to delivery interval in cord prolapse. So, what did they actually do? They described it as a retrospective observational cohort study where they actually looked at this uh, time from decision to delivery interval, and they were looking at it pre and post the introduction of simulation training. And to give you an idea about the time frame, they were looking at this over more than 10 years. So the study or the data is collected from between 2008 to 2019, so quite a long time because unfortunately for our skill set, but quite fortunately for the babies involved, this actually isn't a very common thing. So in fact, just to give you an idea, this at a fairly large maternity hospital uh, still only represents 100 births over that 11 years. And uh, because their sim training was about 2013, so this was sort of midway through that time, they had 41 women pre-simulation training and 61 that were post-simulation training. So they're basically comparing the team performance in these two cohorts. They give a brief description of the simulation training that they did. And I think importantly, it was multimodal. Uh, There was a course, there were the in-situ sims, and then there were more advanced sims. And I think that does represent a group of people who are committed to simulation in a number of different forms trying to address this. Now, obviously, all these sims weren't just about cord prolapse. They were learning about multiple aspects of teamwork and different clinical situations, but they thought this particular clinical performance indicator was a good one as a marker of their teamwork. Now, they also collected some other data and things that they think might have affected um, this measure, things like was it during hours or after hours, was it public or private, what type of anesthesia was given, what was the parity of the woman, what was the um, BMI of the woman, which, all of things which we think might influence that uh, performance as well. And to cut a long story short, they uh, it did improve. They went down from a median time of 17.2 minutes to 13.1 minutes. So there was a more than four-minute difference post-SIM compared to pre-SIM. And perhaps importantly, I will just say, because they have some nice graphs in there that sort of give you the data points, uh, was there was an elimination of outliers. In the pre-SIM time, there were some that were really long time. And you can only imagine that didn't go very well. Uh, whereas what had happened in the post sem, not only was the overall time difference, but they had removed all of those quite long time outliers. So, what do you think, Ben? It seems, on the face of it, very
1: impressive. Uh, I agree, it is impressive, and I think uh, I love the thoroughness and the breadth of this study. And I know that you can sort of only get to association um, from this side of from this sort of paper, but. Um, I think the thing that struck me was, A, that they were able to demonstrate a difference, and then, B, I loved, much like you mentioned, how um, there was this discussion about the outliers because it really struck me this is a challenging group to prove that anything makes care better because obstetric care in Australia seems to be really pretty good. Um, Mm -hmm. And much like the previous, I remember we looked at the Australian version of the PROMPT study, um, there wasn't any significant clinical impact on sick babies that we could find from this study. Um, But I loved that they then really dug in and looked at those outliers where that is going to be the tragic case that upsets your staff and is tragic for families. Um, And it's those sort of events you're actually trying to prevent when your overall quality is really good. So Mm. a great example of that sort of 1% better style approach and and also an impressive example of just how much work you have to do to get better at something at a certain level. It was really amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, when you're talking about these small uh, times anyway, it's tricky. Um, just on that point about the association versus causation. So, yes, they proved that uh, there was sim training after 2013 and there was decreased time for the decision to delivery interval. Does one cause the other? And this is a bit tricky, isn't it? And I guess one thing I would observe, and this has been reflected upon in some of the work about Tim Draycott's unit where the prompt course started, is it just that this team is getting better? And one of the markers of a team getting better is they start doing simulation training and the team getting better also improve their clinical performance. What do you think, Ben? Of this just people now much more engaged in trying to get better and seem as just an artifact of that?
1: Um, I mean, obviously, I believe it's related, but I think also it it probably matters less than we think in terms of what we're getting better at is recognising the whole package and what are the components of a successful team. And one of those components is that they are motivated to change. They care about improvement and they rehearse and reflect on on their performance to continuously try and improve it. So whether one's specifically causative or whether that's just a component that we need to reflect on and incorporate into our practice i think because this isn't a binary drug choice between two different um, antihypertensives, then then we don't necessarily need to get so stuck with that and more get into what that breakdown and how do we replicate that success
0: yeah, uh, and I think it's less about is the sim training the cause or not, but just sort of how is it associated? Is it that that group is uh, bonding more tightly? Is it that they have conversations in there that then lead to more reflective conversations on the floor? Who knows, but I'm happy if the trend seems to be going in the right direction. But I think congratulations on them doing this work. I guess it makes us really also think about where are those markers in any of our teams for performance because I think one of the good things about this is they've just said, look, We've used this as a thin slice approach instead of trying to measure every clinical outcome. They've kind of goes, well, this is one of our tightest and most important challenges, let's use it. Obviously, the downside of that is they have a relatively small number over a long time, and we know that uh, retrospective observational cohort studies become more problematic the longer they are and with changes in practice. And there's a couple of ref- – they, they have disc- they have discussed that very nicely in the paper, but I think that's one of the challenges that it illustrates is how do you find what those thin slice performance indicators might be for any of our teams. Simulcast, translating academic conversations to practical application. All right. Well, the last thing I just wanted to mention about this paper is that it is published as original research in BMJ Stell, uh, Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning, which unfortunately is about to stop existing. But I thought it might be timely just to give a shout out to Deborah Nestel, who many of our simulcast listeners will know, uh, who has been editor in chief of BMJ Stell, uh, because in our last Queen's Birthday Honours, she became a member of the Order of Australia, which is a super big deal. A- and Fabulous recognition of her contribution to simulation, education, health professions, education uh, in general. So I think much deserved. And just so everybody also knows, uh, although the demise of BMJ still is lamented, of course, Deborah is not standing still for long and she's going to become editor-in-chief of a journal which will be starting up in August called the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. So we look forward to seeing that and reviewing some papers in it, Ben.
1: Absolutely, and congratulations again.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, our last paper is also from BMJ Stell. It's a festival of BMJ Stell, and this is in their systematic review. And I'll start with this one, but I know Ben's got a few comments as well. So this paper is titled Nothing About Me Without Me, a scoping review of how illness experiences inform simulated participants' encounters in health professional education. And this is by Linda Nee Chianine uh, and the team who are mainly at um, Belfast in Northern Ireland. So the aim that these authors talk about is that they want to investigate how real illness experience informs simulated patient portrayals in simulation education. Very interesting kind of topic. And they did a scoping review to map the literature on that. And uh, surprise, surprise, they came up with the idea that authentic illness experiences can help create meaningful person-centred simulation education. So to sort of wind back a little bit on that, Uh, they discuss the sort of background and how – appropriately and for some quite good reasons in clinical education, we have moved away from real patients being our only learning material, as it were. As I said, for lots of good reasons, patient gets sick of medical students coming and poking and prodding them and talking to them. Uh, It's hard to manufacture those sorts of things on demand, and sometimes our education needs to be scheduled. But of course, the risk is that then we lose the input of actual patients with lived experiences into that clinical education processes. And I, uh, I'm i going to quote this paragraph because I think this is the bit you want to talk about, Ben, uh, but I think this really gets at the point or the sort of itch that this team had that they wanted to scratch. So I'm going to quote here. Overseen by clinicians, SP portrayals may focus more on a narrow biological dimension of illness rather than emotional, psychological, and social dimensions. Probably quite true. What's the case we write? STEMI. We don't write person with chest pain feeling very bad. Uh, the person with illness experience becomes a phantom within secondary and tertiary depictions of their story, seen as simulacra. Reminds me of another episode we've done on simulacra. In this way, simulation-based education may unintentionally reproduce for Cole's clinical gaze, prioritising objective findings of a subjective experience and co-construction. Uh, simulation-based education must seek to move beyond the paternalistic assumption that clinicians know best. Very confronting as one who's told an SP in quite a few uncertain terms how they should portray a certain patient experience. I've been there. I've done that. So this is like, I feel like confronting in my face. What do you think, Ben? I agree.
1: And I I love it when we accidentally both or with no awareness highlight the exact same quote from the article. (laughs) So that's what I've got written out in front of me is literally those four lines, uh, beautifully written and uh, very true. Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, you did a little bit of a deep dive into Foucault.
1: I did. I don't know. I apologise to Foucault's uh, ghost if I'm pronouncing him wrong. But yeah, I went down a big rabbit hole. So uh, the paper references this, this idea of Foucault's clinical gaze. And then I found a great article by a guy called David Misselbrook in the British Journal of General Practice, which um, describes it really well. So he describes Foucault's The Birth of the Clinic Should Be Read by All Reflective Doctors. Foucault develops the concept of the medical gaze, describing how doctors modify a patient's story, fitting it into a biomedical paradigm filtering out non-biomedical material, and doctors tend to select out the biomedical bits of the patient's problems and ignore the rest because it suits us best that way. I'm still quoting here, but Foucault's charge is that doctors are doctor-oriented, not patient-oriented, and thus medicine creates an abusive power structure. Medical school has taught us more about biomedicine than about patients, and the medical tribe tends to dominate rather than share. We control stick people into appointment slots, strand them in waiting rooms and talk above their heads. And uh, that's the end of the quote. And that, to me, made me think about a lot of things, because uh, when I went to art school, for example, we learned about the the male gaze. So male gaze, uh, I'm quoting Wikipedia here, but it talks about in feminist theory, the male gaze being the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature, from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as sort of sexual objects for the pleasure of the male viewer and in tv you see this all the time or in cinema where the male gaze has three perspectives that of the man behind the camera that of male characters within the film and that of the spectator gazing at the image if you ever watched a Episode of Game of Thrones. That's a very male gazy kind of show, for example. And I thought, oh God, that's exactly what we do. Like if you replace uh, male with doctor, uh, I thought about how in some hospital emergency departments, you know, you're immediately changed into an ugly as hell robe as soon as you get through the door for the convenience of the healthcare staff essentially so we strip away some of your identity on arrival for our convenience so it takes us less time to do an ECG or a cardiac exam but in doing so we chip away at your identity as well Uh, and that's helpful for the clinical gaze because it maximizes our efficiency but there is human cost as well And so once again, I think these concepts from these simulation articles are really useful to think about from a sim perspective, but also to reflect on who we are as a tribe and which roles and people we make central in our narratives. Because while it's hard to always describe, it does have a direct impact on the way we process the information coming from our patients and the way that we care for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know I'll happily Uh, own that as well as a doctor but I have a feeling all clinicians are probably fairly culpable here Uh, we may be the worst but I I do think that uh, we're not alone
1: no and I think part of it is of necessity like you have you have to learn a huge amount of knowledge and you have to process a lot of stuff in a resource stretched environment but it's not without human costs and we don't talk about that side of it very much
0: Mm. All right, so seems like a worthwhile thing to look into, not just to confront those of us who are clinicians with some of the um, realities here, but so... What they decided to do was a scoping review and they described the process by which they did that and their research question was how are real-life illness experiences used within SP portrayals in simulation education. Importantly, their research team did include a patient with illness experience and a simulated patient and they did a scoping review that they described the methodology of fairly uh, clearly in the paper. Uh, And they went through all the articles, and to cut a long story short, they identified 37 that they thought were relevant, and then they uh, pulled out some a few key themes that seem to relate to how that lived experience is incorporated into SP role portrayals. Uh, some of these are familiar to us in some of the other articles that we've looked at related to simulated patients, and one is this issue of terminology. People use different um, terminologies for the same thing that we're talking about. Uh, Then there was the issue about training. How did people do that? And in many articles, people are just referring to SP training without saying what it is or who's involved, and very few of them sort of talk about that. Uh, Then they talk a little bit about the nature and context of the role portrayed by simulated patients. And unsurprisingly, there is a bit of a uh, bias towards simulations that are focused on communication skills, but not only. Uh, and then, maybe the bits that's most interesting is what aspects of real illness experiences did SPs use? Uh, and in fact, some of them are very in-depth. SPs met and observed real patients or gathered um, uh, information about illness experience from people from focus groups of, of families living with certain conditions. They watched video narratives in some things. They uh, looked at literature about patients' preferences of how to break bad news Uh, and other things, like a patient who had a malignant melanoma had it photographed and then they developed a transfer tattoo based on that that they put on the simulated patient. An actual patient's heart and respiratory sounds were electronically captured and then reproduced audibly via a digital stethoscope when applied to an SP's chest. So there's sort of quite a few ways that people had thought about this that I hadn't sort of put into this category and I guess sometimes this is comes up in sort of moulage or ways that we might um, deliver the scenario without necessarily thinking about them as the ways that we uh, embed real illness experience with SP's role portrayals Uh, and then they talked a little bit about the actual impact on learners Uh, some learners don't even realize that SP's aren't Patients with the illness, so that's a tribute to the role portrayal, uh, maybe to the lack of insight of the medical students, who knows. Uh, and then they sort of return in the discussion about you know how SP's roles have been informed by this clinical gaze that you've been talking about. and uh, many clinicians continue to excogitate patient roles without their involvement, but yet describe their simulations as authentic. So I think it does leave us with a challenge. I think that was my interpretation.
1: Agreed. I did love that. they. I think at one point they sort of broadened the scope of their review once they realized how many different ways of uh, approaching uh, illness representation, I guess, uh, which I really liked rather than going up, that's outside our scope. This went, no, this is really interesting. Let's even dig deeper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it does though make me kind of Feel exhausted thinking another thing I've got to incorporate into my sims. So, I think one of the challenges is to be very cognizant of this uh, and think about ways. And again, I'll mention Steph Barwick's name because her PhD is sort of overlaps on some of this. How do we get um, patients and healthcare consumers engaged at this design and preparation? And delivery phases of simulation. And I think people are starting to talk about it. And I'm hoping we're getting some really useful guidance, um, both at a strategic level, as well as at this sort of granular level of helping um, SPs be able to do that role portrayal. Uh, And I think we'll probably find out a little more, and maybe there is more written, I just am unaware of it, about how also the SPs feel after portraying one of these roles because I certainly think Deborah Nestle and others have written about de-rolling, and I know that there's also references from the acting literature in there as well. But, yeah, enjoyed it immensely.
1: Uh, Absolutely, yeah, and I think the de-rolling thing is really interesting. I remember um, similarly, I think when we talked about the original um sp guidelines that came out in advances that we talked about how uh, in clinical debriefing as well sometimes you need to sort of deroll from some of the grief if you're doing a cold debrief for example um that you sort of inherit from other people so i'm sure that transfer happens for many sps as well
0: Mm. all right well i think that might be the simulcast journal club for july thank you ben it's been a pleasure as always
1: so fun and look forward to breakfast tomorrow
0: Yeah, all right. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast.
1: All right, catch you later.
0: Thank you for listening to Simulcast.